If you're here as a guest, if this is your first time here, welcome. My name's Mark. I serve as one of the elders here, teaching pastor. And I'm going to sing along with that. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm not. Um, we have just finished a five-week series on discipleship, Jesus' call to authentic discipleship. And we've been learning about how disciples are people who come into this life-changing relationship with Jesus. They know him, love him, obey him, but their life isn't then just one-on-one with Jesus, but it brings them into a community and into an experience then where they're reaching out to encourage others to either come follow Jesus or to keep following Jesus. We're encouraging, uh, uh, there's this community aspect of uh, being a disciple where we grow together and we come together as a part of the body of Christ in these communities that we call church. And um, that's the, the transition that we're going to make in this series. This month, as Vince just mentioned, we are celebrating our church's 40th birthday. Our church is turning 40 this, this uh, season. And so I really believe, as I've been praying about this, as we've been talking about this season in the life of the church and uh, this, this series... I really believe God wants to encourage you. I really do. I really believe there's a season of just encouragement that God wants to bring through this occasion of our 40th anniversary, our 40th birthday. I believe if, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I, I believe God wants to strengthen you in your faith through this season. If you're here and you're not sure about this Jesus, I believe God wants to Use this season to help you understand the joy and the new life that's available only through this life-changing relationship with Jesus. And so we have this sermon series. It's called Together, Standing Fast in the Lord. Now, I don't know who planned this, but there is kind of a baseball theme there, don't you think? Like, I don't know. Any Nats fans here? Anybody thinking? It's, okay. All right. Okay. So... Any Cardinals fans over there in the St. Louis section? All right. Through this season of the life of the church, this week, next week, and the weeks to come, we want to sprinkle into the service stories, letters, testimonies from longtime church members that we hope will be encouraging to everyone here. You may have just recently arrived. You may have been here four decades You may just be here in the future for a short time. You may find yourself decades from now still here. I believe this is going to be a season of encouragement for each one of you, wherever you are. And um, as part of that, at the end of the sermon this morning, we're going to hear from uh, one of our longtime members, Carol Sawyer, and her story of 36 years uh, uh, as part of the, the church community here with us. But before we hear from her, we want to turn... To God's Word. Now, I want to ask a question. Where would you go in the Bible to find a place of encouragement from God for a church on an occasion like we're, we're experiencing here, these, these 40 years together? And there are obviously in Scripture many places we might go for God's people to be encouraged. And we might especially think, hey, well, you know, there are letters. There's a dozen or so letters in the New Testament that are letters that are written to particular churches. And so that might be an encouraging place to go. And as as we think about that, you might not 
have realized it and sort of dawned on me as, as I was preparing this series. One of the letters, one of these epistles is different from all the others because more than half of the letter is simply encouragement and affection being expressed by a pastor, a leader who loves this church and he can't be with them. And so he writes to them of his affection for them, of his encouragement to them. That letter is the one we know as 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, we find five chapters. And in those chapters, we find subjects, if you're familiar with the letters in the New Testament, there's subjects in there that won't be surprising. How to live holy lives. What happens when Jesus comes back? Things like that. The surprise in 1 Thessalonians is this. These first three chapters, there are no instructions, no imperatives, no commands. There's no doctrinal teaching. These first three chapters are filled with affection, with love, with encouragement. They're intended to be of great encouragement to a church. Now, Obviously, it's not our church, and yet it's a church very much like our church, a group of people who are together standing fast in the Lord. And it's as though Paul, in writing them, is saying, look, before I write to you about what you need to do or what you need to know, I want to remind you of how much you're being, you are loved. I want to remind you of your identity, of who you've become in Christ. I want to remind you of where you're headed and that the best is yet to come. And I believe through those words inspired by the Holy Spirit 2,000 years ago, God wants to bring that same encouragement to you. So this morning we want to hear 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. And Lynn Wilson is going to come and read the Word of God to us. Thanks, Lynn. Sylvanius and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ grace to you and peace we give thanks to God always for you constantly mentioning you in our prayers remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove, proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us And of the Lord, for you received the word with much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us 
the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Linda. Let's pray. Oh, God, you are the God of endurance and encouragement. Let these words, these ten verses inspired by you, let them come to us with comfort and with strong encouragement. Let them reach the ears and the heart of every person here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just want to do two things with the message this morning. First, I want to tell you the story about how this letter came to be written so that you can appreciate and experience the impact of the letter. If we don't understand sort of the, the, the genesis of the letter, how it came to be, we won't be able to experience the, the impact of it in the way that we can. So I want to explain how it came to be, and then I just want to open up uh, this first chapter so that you can be strengthened and encouraged in the same way that uh, this church was. So first, how the letter came to be written. How did this letter come to be written? So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been waiting for someone to show up? Ever had that experience where you're just waiting for someone? You know what I'm talking about? So, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're a grandparent waiting for the, the kids and the grandkids to show up. Maybe you're in your dorm room waiting for a date to show up. Maybe you're just looking out the window waiting for the pizza guy to show up. But you know what I'm talking about. You, there's this can't wait for this person to show up experience. So I want you to try to picture a scene now in your mind. Paint this picture if you can get this in, in your mind. Picture the Apostle Paul. He's in the city of Corinth. The year is A.D. 50, so it's less than 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. And, and I want you to picture Paul, and he's waiting. He's, he's pacing around. He's looking out the window. He's looking down the street. He's asking, have you seen him? Any, anybody, any news? Is he in town yet? Has anybody heard? Now, who's he waiting for? Who's he looking for? Well, he's waiting for Timothy, his, his co-worker, his, his protege. He's waiting for Timothy. And, and why? Well... Here's what happened. Maybe a few months, maybe a year earlier. We don't know exactly the timeline, but but not very long before Paul and a group of people with him had been out church planting. I want to just show you kind of the the route that they've been traveling. I think we've got a map here for you. So if you start down in the lower right where it says Palestine down there, that's where Jerusalem is, where where the, the gospel uh, began and it began to radiate out from there. And this journey that, that Paul was on is called his second missionary journey. He started just above there. We see where it says Syria and, and the city of Antioch. That's where this journey began. It's actually a, a region that's that's much in the news right now with Turkey and and Syria. It's that same region where he started. And they they traveled overland through with a modern day nation of Turkey, uh, moving from right to left across there where it says Asia. And, and they ended up at the Aegean Sea in this little this city called Troas. And from there, God led them to cross the sea, 
the Aegean Sea and, and go into what uh, there is, is called Macedonia and modern day uh, is, is, is Greece. And so they uh, stopped in Philippi and the gospel got quite a reception there. And then there was this backlash and a riot. And so they were severely beaten and had to leave. And they ended up the next place they, they stayed for a while was this city called Thessalonica, the, the letter to the Thessalonians. And so what what we're seeing here is the gospel as these gospel seeds are going out. Some people are receiving them. Some people are rejecting them. And if you were here last week, you remember when Matt talked about the wild ride of the Great Commission? It's not always smooth sailing when you go out as a Christian, is it? Well, this is this wild ride. And so there are these riots and these churches that are getting started and, and, and beatings and, and, and joy and affliction. And it's all happening all at the same time. And so as they're in Thessalonica, there's another riot and there's a mob that descends on the house of one of the Christians, Jason, because they're looking for Paul and his co-workers. They're not there at the time. And so as, as a result of what's happening, Paul has to leave the city. He doesn't want to leave. He wants to be with this new church. They've maybe only been Christians for a few weeks or a, a few months, but he's forced out. He ends up in Athens. He sends Timothy to go find out how they're doing. He then Paul moves down to Corinth. And so now he's in Corinth and he's waiting and he's waiting because Timothy's up there in Thessalonica and he's going to come back and tell them how they're doing. And he can't wait to hear. And he's just in agony. Are they doing OK? Have they left Christ? Have they have they recanted or or are they standing fast? And he wants to know what's happening. Finally, Timothy arrives. And he's got news. It's good news. They're together. They're standing fast in Christ. Paul is so relieved and he's so encouraged. Now, there's problems. There's trouble. We'll, fi we'll find out what some of those problems are as we work our way. It's not a perfect church, so he's going to address some of those things. But what he does then is he, he knows he can't go back. And so he writes a letter. And what you have in front of you is the letter that Paul wrote back. So now I want you to shift in your mind, if you can, from Paul getting this news in Corinth and writing this letter. Imagine then being part of that church in Thessalonica. Probably meeting in somebody's house. So imagine, you know, the weather's nice. You're sitting out in somebody's patio. It's the, the Lord's Day, for the time for worship, the Word. And there's this letter from your pastor and friend, leader, Paul. And here's what he has to say. Can you imagine being there gathered together? He's, he's saying, oh, church, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before our God and Father for your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in Christ. Jesus. Can you can you imagine the experience of this this man that's had such an impact in your life and he can't be with you, but he's just expressing his love and his affection for you. He's saying, oh, church, you're out of sight, but you're not out of mind. I haven't forgotten you. I love you. Wish I could be with you. He's, he's, of course, got worries and concerns about what's going on there. But before he tells them what they need to do or what they need to know, he, he does something marvelous. He reminds them how they're loved, who they've become, and where they're headed. He encourages them. wonder... Anybody come to church this morning needing some encouragement? I wonder if there's anybody here that would benefit from 
just being reminded that in Christ you are greatly loved, more loved than you can ever imagine. I wonder if there's anybody this morning who would appreciate just a, a fresh reminder of your identity, who you've become in the Lord and where you're headed, what really matters and where hope really lies in the future. Well, that's what we have for us in First Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10 this morning. So let me remind you, let the Holy Spirit remind us through these inspired words. First, how you're loved, how you're loved. Now, just this reading these words to you. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. And so humanly speaking, this church, they've, they've got people who love them. They're greatly loved by this man, by his co-workers. But how do you, how do you love someone when you can't be with them? Well, one thing you can do is you can pray for them. And another thing you can do is you can tell them that you're praying for them. Now, I want you to observe how he's praying for them. I, I just find this prayer and others like it just bring me up short in my prayer life every time. The frequency of it. We're praying constantly for you. The content of the prayer. He starts not with the the, the, their needs, not with their problems, not with what needs to be changed in their lives. He starts with thanksgiving. We thank God constantly for, for you. Before God, we remember you. And the focus of the prayer is their faith and hope and love. Things we hear in other letters of Paul as well. You know, I'm sorry to admit, but I have to, to be honest, that sometimes I've told people I would pray for them and I, and I didn't. And I find myself so encouraged and inspired by this practice of prayer. We are constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And I love that he doesn't start with where they need to change, but he starts with his love and appreciation for who they've already become. Do you pray like this for your church? Do you pray like this for your community group, for your friends, brothers and sisters in the Lord? You know what? I find that when I pray like this, my heart gets bigger for the people I pray for. When I pray prayers of thanksgiving, when I remember with gratefulness before God you, I find that I, when I remember your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope, I, I find the next time I see you, my heart is enlarged for you. You know, if we pray like this, we'll be different. And if we pray like this and tell others we're praying like this, they'll be different too. Let me remind you this morning how you're loved. Loved, there are people in your life praying for you. But more than that, you're loved by God. He says, we know, brothers, verse 4, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do we know? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also with power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He says, you're loved by God, and we know it because you've been chosen by God. Now, some people get uncomfortable with the doctrine of election, this idea of being chosen by God. And yet, there's no avoiding it in Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, it's there. 
And the reality is, the reason it's there is because if God left it up to us, no one would choose him. Right? We spread the seed of the gospel and we leave it to God to bring the results. Right? And in these people, when the gospel came, something happened. The Holy Spirit came in power and they woke up. They experienced conviction. If, if you're a Christian, you know that experience. The Word of God comes to you and, and all of a sudden you begin to see your need for a Savior. You begin to realize that you're living in someone else's universe, that you're not on the throne. You begin to realize that Jesus is the Lord and rescuer that, that you need. This all happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's all an evidence. If this has happened in your life, you know you are loved by God. And if you're sitting here this morning and this hasn't happened in your life, God's love for you is so great to bring you here this morning to wake you up to this great God and his saving son, Jesus Christ. Let me remind you this morning of how you are loved. Second, let me remind you of who you've become. Of who you've become. I would encourage you sometime this week, go to Acts chapter 17. You can read the story of the the founding of this church and the the birth of this church. Paul comes to that that city of Thessalonica and he does what he typically does. He goes first to the synagogue and so he's preaching to Jewish people. And it says some Jewish people came to faith and some of the Greek God-fearing people came to faith. But as as he writes this letter, it would seem from the way he writes and the fact that they turned from idols to serve God, it would seem that the majority of of the church were converts that were pagans, just regular old people living there, caught up in the values and beliefs and practices of the day. And they heard about Jesus and they became his disciples and they began began to know him and love him and follow him. And then they, they came together as a church and they stuck together and they were encouraging one another as the body of Christ. This wasn't easy. They weren't getting a lot of encouragement from people in their City. There was, in fact, as I mentioned, a small riot when a mob attacked Jason's house. One of the Christians, these new believers were paying a price to follow Jesus. They weren't winning popularity contests. They weren't getting promoted because they were Christians. They weren't becoming rich and famous because they were Christians. And yet they were persevering. And one of the reasons they were persevering was because they had these wonderful role models. He says, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. They had good role models about how to be joyful under pressure and in affliction. They had human beings, Paul and his co-workers, who'd been through this before. They were going through it again with them. His disciples make disciples, and we learn by experience from watching others. But you know what's stunning here? Stop and think about this. He says, you became imitators not only of us, but also of the Lord. I want you to think about that. He's, he's talking about Jesus here. The very first thing he says in the, in the letter is, he says to the Thessalonians church, in, in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means you are located in the sphere of God, Father and Son. In him you live and move and have your being. He says, you became a people who left your idols, the gods that you worshipped, and you came to serve Jesus the Lord. You became a worshipper of Jesus. He's, he's describing Jesus in his deity. 
And yet, he says, and you became imitators of Jesus in his joy in the midst of affliction. Do you know that Jesus is God and yet God who doesn't just sort of float above the fray, but God who becomes one of us. Jesus knows what it's like to have to get up in the morning and go to work. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood by your parents. Jesus knows what it's like to be a prophet without honor in your own hometown. Jesus knows what it's like to experience rejection by your own people. Jesus knows what it's like to be on the wrong end of a corrupt legal system and end up shamed publicly, convicted for a crime he never committed, and crucified for it. And in the midst of all that affliction, he is our God and our example. What a great Savior we have in Christ. God over all. In him we live and move and have our being. And yet we imitate him. We study his life. We look at how he lived because he did everything well. He succeeded in every place that we fail. He set the pattern for us in every aspect of life on earth. He's our Lord and our brother. And you've become imitators of him. You're new creations. And he's your Lord and your role model. And these people needed that kind of help because they were under tremendous pressure Social pressure pushing them to reject Jesus, to forget about all this Christian nonsense, to come back to being the kind of people they used to be. I wonder how much social pressure we might be willing to endure for the sake of Christ. I was thinking about that guy whose house was attacked because there were Christian leaders there. And I was thinking, you know, I wonder what would happen to my faith the day after a mob attacked my house. How would I do? And yet these people found in their leaders and in Christ models to imitate. And more than that, in Christ they found a treasure so great that they said, we're willing to give it all up just to have him. And you know what happened? As they clung to Jesus in that way, the word got out. People started to talk. Thessalonica's on a trade route. Lots of people coming through. And the word started to spread probably through all those travels. Hey, did you hear about that church in Thessalonica? They barely got started. A bunch of baby Christians. There was a riot in the city. The leaders all had to flee. And they won't give up on Jesus. And other churches in the region got so encouraged by their example. They were imitators who became imitated. They were disciples who were making disciples. Their example brought great encouragement to Christians in other places. And this is what happens. Do you know what happens when you cling to Christ? Do you know what happens when you find Jesus more precious than anything else? Do you know what happens when in spite of social pressure, 
or cancer or loneliness or depression or any other affliction? Do you know, do you know what happens when you hold on to Christ in moments like that, in seasons like that, in years like that? You become an example to others. And I'm, I'm looking at faces. We're living that out. And I believe God wants to encourage you this morning. Your steady faith not only brings glory to God, you're becoming an example that others are looking to and imitating to be strengthened and encouraged in your own life. Keep going. Finally, let me remind you Let me remind you where you're headed. It says in verse 9 that you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. These people were like all people. Headed for destruction, for judgment and wrath before the creator and judge of the universe. But they heard this good news about Jesus and they turned. They turned to wait for this great God who would return from heaven. They They left their empty way of life and they turned. Serve Jesus, the Lord, and to wait for him to come back. Let's just pause here and ask. What's the blessed hope of the church? You know, it's not who wins the next election. It's not what happens to the stock market or the Nats. What's the blessed hope of Redeeming Grace Church? It's the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let that settle. The blessed hope of this church is the return from heaven of the one who rose from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I believe the third day he rose again from the dead. I believe he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And I believe from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that does change everything. The Thessalonians were together. They were standing fast in the Lord despite all their difficulties. And you know, their stubborn faith, their persistent faith, It reminds me of the story of the Star-Spangled Banner. Our national anthem was written by Francis Scott Key. The story of the writing of the song goes like this. He was on this ship watching the bombardment of Fort McHenry by British ships during the War of 1812. As the sun began to go down, it was 
getting dark and it was a rainy night, but he could see that the flag continued to fly. Sometimes he could only see by the rocket's red glare, the bursting of the shells. And then at some point, the shelling stopped, got dark, no electricity, no lights. He didn't know how the battle turned out. He didn't know what flag was flying over the fort until the morning. And then by dawn's early light, he could see that the flag was still there. The stars and stripes were still flying stubbornly despite all the opposition and affliction. Flag still waving. Timothy comes from Thessalonica and he says, Paul, the flag's still flying. These guys are stubborn in their faith. They're together. They're standing fast in the Lord. You know what? Forty years into it, by the grace of God. The flag's still flying here, isn't it? We're still together. We're standing fast in Christ. I'd like to transition here to give you a chance to hear from one of our members who's been here 36 years. Carol is standing fast, and I hope her story will encourage you. She'll tell you much about her experience during these 36 years, but she won't tell you that she's a very bright and articulate woman. You'll discern that as she reads and speaks to us. She's a woman of the Word, and one of the things I love about Carol, she's been through Simeon Trust, she's been through the C.S. Lewis Fellows Program. I just, Carol, I love the way that you've engaged your heart, soul, and mind in God's Word to be strengthened, to stand together with us, to follow Him all these years. So we're so grateful that you would come and share your story. Please do that. morning. I first learned about Fairfax Community of Believers as a high school student through attending a weekly worship and teaching ministry called Saturday Night Alive, where Benny Phillips, our founding pastor, was a leader. Leaving for college in the fall of 1979, around the time our church was launched, I never actually visited until my senior year when I decided to return to Northern Virginia after graduation. Convinced that membership in a vital, Christ-centered local church was essential, I planned to check this one out while home on spring break. All I really knew about our church before coming that Sunday was that Benny was the pastor. But as the service unfolded, I grew in certainty that this was the place for me. So... In June of 1983, I arrived here, wide-eyed, earnest, and eager, for all intents and purposes, still a kid. From the start, I threw myself headlong into the life of this church. Thirty-six years and four church name changes later, by God's grace, I have never looked back. From my early days at this church, I remember most this air of expectancy which seemed to permeate every gathering. 
I remember always feeling excited about what God was up to and simply thrilled to be a part of it all. The members were mostly young, zealous, and idealistic, but we wanted to be faithful to Scripture, a church that closely resembled New Testament churches, such as in the book of Acts. We sang words like, I want to serve the purpose of God in my generation, and we truly believed that our little church could make a difference to a large, lost, and dying world. After I joined, it wasn't long before a leadership controversy arose, resulting in the departure of a sizable faction of the church members. Ironically, it was through observing the humble reaction of our pastors when a man stood up in the middle of a Sunday service and began screaming about their faults that I received confirmation this was where God wanted me. That wasn't the only time our church's foundations have been rocked, but God has shown himself faithful to rebuild and restore, and we are better for his discipline. As is the case with many of the other RGC old-timers, my husband and I met here. In fact, on the night I attended my very first home group meeting. An active member since the church's inception, Jeff first became my dear friend as together we attended the singles ministry, served with the worship team and the choir, and helped with the youth group. We were married in 1987 and have five adult children. It is no exaggeration to declare that this church forms the fundamental threads of our family's spiritual DNA. Jeff and I have lived through every season of our lives here, as singles, newlyweds, young parents, middle-agers, and now grandparents. This is where we met those we count our closest friends, who are really more like family. Along with them, we have marveled at God's grace, experienced some euphoric highs. We've also crawled together on bruised and bloodied knees through pits, deeper than any of us could have ever imagined. Where would we be without God's word or without his church? How do people live without Jesus? We don't know, and we don't ever want to find out. We love Redeeming Grace Church, and we thank God for our leaders and for each church member. In some ways, the church we attend today bears little resemblance to the one we joyfully aligned ourselves with way back when. But... The Lord, who called us here, never changes, and he has built RGC into a vibrant, diverse church family where the gospel is still faithfully preached week in and week out, where young and old from many nations know, love, and obey Jesus together, serve our community together, and need one another. Jeff and I gratefully affirm that long after we are gone, God will still be faithful to RGC. Ephesians 3:20 to 21 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever, throughout all generations. Amen.
Isn't that great? What a great God we serve, and what a joy to be part of what he's doing on the earth. May this be a season of encouragement for all of you. God is just renewing or, or imparting vision for what church can be and encouraging us for what church already is. Not perfect, but together in Christ. And we just hope that a vision for church is a place of affection and encouragement, a place of faith and hope and love, a gospel-shaped community finding joy in affliction, finding hope in the great day when our Lord returns. We hope this will be a season of just encouraging and, and, and stirring and deepening those things within us. And so we want to uh, close the service as we often do with singing back to our great God. So please stand and let's sing. Mm-hmm.